Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Sharp China. I'm Andrew Sharp, and on the other line, Bill Bishop. Bill, how you doing? Good. Hey, Andrew. Hi, everybody. I'm good. We were recording late this week. It's a Thursday, and Thursday afternoons especially are always kind of the hardest part of the week. Um, so it's it's always, uh, I think, bit off a bit too much than I could chew for a, a daily newsletter. So we'll see. I hope I hope I don't put you guys to sleep during this podcast. I'm feeling <laughs> yeah. a little groggy. Well, I was feeling groggy earlier this week, and that's why we had to delay things a bit. So grogginess comes for us all. Uh, a cold and gray winter day here. I am in a good mood, though. We're outside the paywall. Always fun to be outside the paywall. You have to be on our P's and Q's, make sure we don't get canceled. Um, so Maybe that thrill can help carry us to the finish line as we all try to make it to Friday afternoon, you know? Inject some positive energy, as they say. Exactly. And also, since we were delayed this week, uh, we have more news to wrap our arms around than we can possibly cover on this show. So we'll run through what we can. And I want to start today with an article from Politico EU. The headline reads, China's Xi goes full Stalin with purge. And they write, without a byline, uh, something is rotten in the imperial court of Chairman Xi Jinping. While the world is distracted by war in the Middle East and Ukraine, a Stalin-like purge is sweeping through China's ultra-secretive political system with profound implications for the global economy and even the prospects for peace in the region. And then what follows in the rest of the article, I'll just read two examples. So first, here's some discussion of Chin Gong, and they write, On June 25th this year, barely six months after becoming foreign minister, Chin Gong held meetings in Beijing with the foreign ministers of Sri Lanka and Vietnam, as well as Deputy Russian Foreign Minister Andrei Rodenko. According to several people with access to high-level Chinese officials, Rodenko's real mission in Beijing was to inform Xi that his foreign minister and several top officers in the PLA had been compromised by Western intelligence agencies. China's nuclear weapons program has massively expanded in recent years, and according to people with access to top Chinese officials, Rodenko's message to Xi included allegations that Chin and relatives of top rocket force officers had helped pass Chinese nuclear secrets to Western intelligence agencies. Two of these people claim that Chin died, either from suicide or torture, in late July in the military hospital in Beijing that treats China's top leaders. And then here's a second example related to Li Keqiang. They write, quote, Another ominous sign is the untimely death of Li Keqiang, China's recently retired prime minister, number two in the communist hierarchy, who supposedly died of a heart attack in a swimming pool in Shanghai in late October, despite enjoying some of the world's best medical care. Following his death, Xi ordered public mourning for his former rival be heavily curtailed. And in the minds of many in China, heart attack in a swimming pool has the same connotation that falling out of a window does for Russian apparatchiks, apparatchiks (laughs) who anger or offend Vladimir Putin. So, Bill, this article emerged in advance of the EU-China summit that is taking place this week. Uh, And again, it was published without a byline. So what's your reaction to what's being put forward in that piece? I'll let you take it whatever direction you want to (laughs) go. So 
I, you know, it strings together the only the only rumor, the only thing in that article that I had not heard along the rumor mill, a sort of various hypotheses, guesses, rumors, manufactured claims about what had happened with Qingong and the the PLA off uh, some of the PLA rocket force officers was the bit about the tip coming from the Russian side. Mm. Um, uh, so start off uh, uh, the the claim that the public mourning for Li Keqiang was somehow dramatically curtailed. It's not actually clear that it was any different than what was allowed for the death of the the last death of a premier, and certainly the scale of the funeral was the same. But again, people there are plenty of people, especially in the overseas or Chinese media dissident community, who are very much. Uh, of the belief that something happened to Li Keqiang that wasn't natural. And so mm-hmm. the default for a lot of people is always going to be something nefarious. You can't actually prove that it wasn't. Um, but going back to this article, I mean, I was frankly uh, kind of shocked that Politico ran this article because it was like, I, I, I have seen these kinds of articles on some overseas Chinese websites and some blogs on Twitter, some YouTube uh, channels, even some podcasts, believe it or not. Um, but to see it sort of strung together, packaged up and written that way and given top billing on the Politico EU website, uh, when so much of it is rumor, speculation, guesswork and projection was was just, I don't know, I was kind of surprised that that... I was um, too. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you had it in, in your Cynicism newsletter. You had a screenshot. It was featured as the top story on Politico EU's website. Right. And it if if you had shown me this in like a blog spot format, it would not have surprised me in the slightest because it's like, yeah, this is the type of thing that blogs exist to yeah. speculate and, about. But and some <laughs> some random contributor could write it. No, and and you know, to to someone's credit at Politico in that article, they did include the line: "Given the opacity of the Chinese system, it is impossible to confirm these accounts definitively." Mm-hmm. <laughs> Meaning, warning label: this all could be BS. We just don't know. Um, right, and that is that is fair because we don't know. But the way it was presented was was frank, was just a bit a bit shocking. I will say um, the the bit about sort of the tip off coming from the Russian foreign minister, uh, deputy foreign minister Rudenko. Uh, I think he was there around the the twenty fifth or twenty sixth of June, and then Qingdong disappeared soon after. Uh, Couple things. One, I believe there had already been some investigations started in the PLA Rocket Force before that period, uh, before that date. And two, it just seems a little bit shocking that Xi Jinping would get a tip from a Russian deputy foreign minister and then within just a couple of days take out his handpicked foreign minister. Mm-hmm. Um, you'd think that there would be something a little more, a little more time would be spent trying to figure out what's going on. Again, we don't know. It's certainly possible. But I just think that this was an article that, um, again, it's just a weird setup. It was it was clearly timed for this EU China summit that happened today. Uh, why sort of what the thinking was about you know is sort of was this a, an attempt to make sure that the political class in Europe try to define to them what the PRC political system is like. I mean, it, the, the thing is, is you, you don't have to actually go with just rumors and unsubstantiated things to look at what's happening in China and say this is getting pretty tense and pretty yeah. uh, uh, sort of from a Western perspective, pretty scary on the political side. 
So I don't know. I, I don't know. I don't know how this article ultimately um, ultimately is going to sort of w- what it's going to do. I don't think that it necessarily helps Politico's uh, editorial uh, reputation. Speaking of the reputation, who wrote it? There's speculation. We don't know. Okay. So I mean, I got lots of lots of lots of lots of messages back and forth from people that um, that it was actually written by the editor in chief of Political Europe, who used to be the Beijing bureau chief of Financial Times, a guy named Jamil Anderlini, who's done some really good work in the past. Mm-hmm. Um, it's also strange why they would decide not to put um, a byline on it. So, but it uh, it made a huge you know made made a huge splash. Uh, we're talking about it. Lots of people have talked about it. I see lots of people on Twitter, other social media sites and other email groups I'm in talking about it as if it's all, you know, assuming it's all correct and all true. Right. Um, so uh, we're just back to we actually don't know what's going on. The, the CPC is not particularly helpful in letting people or helping people figure figure out what's going on. Um, and so in that information vacuum, you can sort of say whatever you want. Absolutely. Anything can can yeah. ring true um, when nothing is ever confirmed. Yeah. I mean, to me, it seemed like a mix of older reporting that we were all pretty familiar with um, and then rumors that even the piece itself admits are impossible well, to confirm or deny. Right. And so the bits about Shingong, I mean, so certainly there's, again, heard all this, heard, heard he killed himself, heard he died in a torture Heard he's in a rubber room at the 301 PLA hospital in Beijing, like babbling to the walls, apologizing to Xi Jinping. We have no idea. People, you know, you, you can pick pick your pick your guess or pick your hypothesis as to what's going on with, with Qinggong. The the rocket force connection is very interesting because early on there was a rumor that Qinggong had somehow helped the son of one of the generals who came to the US. Mm-hmm. And that there was some sort of at least one of the rocket force generals who was taken out. It was because his son had been compromised by the CIA and was leaking, was giving the U.S. nuclear secrets. And because Qinggong had helped him in the U.S. on something, therefore Qinggong was implicated too. And this was going around back August, September timeframe. Right. Uh, again, I, I, my own attempts to figure out what was going on came back fairly convinced that that was all BS. But like I said, we don't actually know. And so it just goes back to, on the one hand, People want to write about CPC politics and say what's going on. And on the other hand, no one has any really good sources now. And yeah. so you can string together all these different theories. And, and I we think we talked about it before. There was a period, and it was it was a period when Jamil was in Beijing, the, the, the Jamil Anderlini, when um, sort of the 2000s-ish, if you lived in Beijing and you had the right sort of contacts, friends, you could actually get a pretty good idea of what was going on. It was mm. a lot more poor information flow was a, was a was a lot larger and there's a lot more sort of porousness around the sort of elite levels in Beijing. That's not the case at all now. Nobody, I think, it's really hard to find anybody who will talk, especially to a foreigner who has any credible any reason any likelihood of actually really knowing what the hell's going on. Yeah. Yeah, I mean it, the risks have been heightened like tenfold. In, well, it's it's in the, the risk, the risks too, but also just the 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 circle of people who really know what's going on has been dramatically. Ah, tightened. that's a good point. Also, yeah, yeah. I mean, I found this article interesting because after a year of hosting this podcast, I'm now trained to be highly skeptical of some of the more sensational reports that emerge on she and any instability that may or may not be associated with his regime. 
So I was skeptical going in and the way it was being discussed on social media, it reminded me of that piece. I think it was the South China Morning Post um, like a couple months ago where the writer was speculating that she had been scolded by the elders. No, that was Nikkei. Oh, Nikkei. That's right. Yes. And and, and, and a, a, a journalist friend of mine who's covered China for a long time or not. I'm sorry. And I, 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 this was a different conversation. I had so many conversations yesterday. Another person <laughs> who spent a long, long part of their career looking at Chinese politics, their their reaction to the piece was, when did Politico become Nikkei? Yeah, exactly. Um, which, <laughs> no, I mean, literally, it's like, oh, that's actually interesting because that just shows you how it shows you the risks of trying to write stuff about these stories and how um, how quickly it can it can, you know, Tarnish a reputation. Nikkei does a lot of yeah. great work. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but this was a spiritual heir to that uh, piece. Nikkei probably has the best tech, uh, China tech coverage out there. It, right. You know, they just, it, but when it comes to trying to write about, about elite CPC politics, some people feel like they have to write about it regularly. And, and it's, it's just one of those things where you end up, I think, falling into the trap of having to sort of repeat and string together various theories, assertions, and frankly, just unprovable or false rumors. Yeah. Well, and what was interesting to me, though, is mentally, I put this piece into that same bucket where it's entertaining gossip and it's not to be taken seriously. But then prepping for the show and reading back through the piece this morning, I was struck by how many things in the piece actually have been confirmed whether it's the disappearances of Chingong and mm-hmm. defense minister and the tons of upheaval that we saw in the rocket force and key figures in the financial sector under investigation and disappearing. And most of all, what the piece describes as the feverish paranoia yeah. permeating no, Beijing. That, that part is correct. That, that, see, and, that, and I talked about yesterday in, in, in yesterday's newsletter, that part is important and it's correct. Right. And so it's interesting because the details are unconfirmed and possibly flat wrong in certain cases. But the bigger picture of that piece is pretty consistent is with a lot of what we've discussed. Pro- over the last Prominent year. people are disappearing. And and in many cases, you're not actually being told what's happening. Right. And so what seems like a crazy, sensationalized piece does have large elements of it that are just true and, and have been confirmed. Yeah. And, and we are all just sort of operating in this new reality where people can disappear every other month in Beijing and it's business as usual under Xi in this uh, current atmosphere. So, yeah, I just was curious to to get your thoughts on how stuff like that comes together and 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 how to process how you process um i guess reporting like that i don't know that it's necessarily reporting but it's uh certainly got a lot of attention this past couple of days yeah no and i think i mean again i think the article talking about the the, you know the the paranoia extends in all parts of the bureaucracy and seems to have tarnished anyone seen as too westernized or too close to hostile western forces I'm, i'm quoting from the article um, you know, I, I I think that's right, and there's value in writing about that and doing an article that raises that, make you know, pushes that further into the popular understanding. It's just how you do that, you know, how you how you spin the story up to that, where you know you could just list, you could just put a list together of all the people who've disappeared for unclear reasons. Right. You don't have um, to reach any definitive and, right? conclusions. And, and, you know, the the PLA rocket force bits could be. Related to Qinggong, they could be completely separate. The defense minister seems related to the rocket forces. Is he really related to Qinggong? You know, some people want to spin this up as some large 
larger sort of group or conspiracy that you know unhappy with Xi, so they're leaking to the U.S. or or are they all you know individual or, or individual cases or at least in the PLA, a group groups of officers who were just looking at um, so much money. I mean, there's you know the latest rumor on the Shangfu, the defense minister, former defense minister, is that the investigation progressed and they think he stole at least 500 million RMB. Uh, again, Whoa. is that is that true? That's you know what eight, what is that eighty seventy five million dollars? Right? I'm here repeating something that I've I've heard. I, you know, well, the, you're qualifying the, it at the top, saying this is totally unconfirmed. This is right, just but, what I've heard, which is not what this piece did. Just for the record, right? But so, but so, okay. So if that's true, that it's about corruption, then it's not really about you know it could it could also be about you know spies i mean honestly i think i joked in this subsec chat or maybe on notes just you know in some ways it's great if the western intelligence agencies are able to convince she that there are spies everywhere right you know right because because from the western Western intelligence agency (laughs) the more paranoid she gets the more the system eats itself you know the more it probably degrades some of their capabilities right i mean so so who knows what's going on i i just think that it was sort of presented as a hard news article. And I don't know. I mean, it, again, to the credit of somebody, maybe the author, maybe an editor at Politico, they, they did basically caveat the entire story. Yeah. Toward the so, end there. Um, yeah. Nice and tidy. Yeah. And, and as far as the atmosphere of paranoia is concerned, we don't have to go into it. But Thursday, the South China Morning Post ran a story headlined, China military official warrants of erroneous ideological trends spreading in the PLA. And I'll link that story in the show notes, but I'll just note that there's a story like that every 24 to 48 hours over the past three or four months. There's just concerns in every industry and aspect of society under Xi about Western influence and and that sort of thing. It's, it's been every week. It's been since, it's been for a decade plus. Um, I mean, even longer. Th- this sort of fears about hostile foreign forces, Western ideological influences, are you know, it's baked into the DNA of the party. Um, although it certainly has intensified under Xi. Um, to your, you raised the South China Morning Post. I think it's also speaking of disappearances. Uh, uh, a South China Morning Post reporter named Minnie Chan, who has uh, covered worked for the South China Morning Post for a long time, has covered the PLA, good reporter. Um, she has disappeared and she disappeared soon after or right after this, uh, the Xiangshan forum, which is a PLA ministry defense forum, uh, in, I think it was in October, her friends and colleagues are clear, pretty clear that she's been taken away. The paper itself said that, uh, her family had said she's on leave and asked for privacy and then threatened to sue at least one media outlet that was asking questions about where she is. Oh, wow. Um, well, we don't know what happened. I hope she's okay. Uh, uh, she covered the PLA beat. You know, maybe she heard something she wasn't supposed to, you know, about what's really going on. I mean, there, there's a lot of murkiness. And so in some, on some ways, it's easy to criticize a political story. On the other hand, it is fair. To, and this is why the stories like this can exist is because you can't actually say 100% it's all bullshit or BS. Excuse right. me. We can bleep that out. Right. It's, <laughs> it's all right. <laughs> Even though we're outside the paywall, anything goes on Sharp China. Yeah. And honestly, that reminds me of Chung Lei, the Australian reporter who was finally released uh, a couple months ago. And I remember we were recording an episode and 
I had that on the rundown. Her talking about her experience in detention was so grim and chilling that, that on top of a, a number of other pretty disturbing stories, I just didn't have the stomach to discuss it and, and work through how depressing it was. Um, but you really, that's one where there was confirmation from people who lived it on the ground. Um, granted, she wouldn't say very much about why exactly she was detained, uh, but just talking about her experience of basically being kept in like a windowless room with the lights on 24 hours a day and having electronics confiscated, not being able to see her kids, stuff like that. Like, it's just really, really gut wrenching. And that was what came to mind when I saw the the news about Minnie Chan and the uncertainty there. Um, mm-hmm. And so I, I guess we hope for the best and hope that she really is on leave. But yeah, there it hasn't been very much confirmation to sort of shore up that um, theory of what's going on. Right. Yeah. So um Pretty concerning. And uh, last week, Bloomberg reported that analysts at China International Capital Corp are barred from sharing negative comments about the economy or markets in both public and private discussions, according to an internal memo sent to the research department this month and seen by Bloomberg News. Employees should also avoid wearing luxury brands or revealing their compensation to third parties, the memo said. So, This will be our transition to finance with Chinese characteristics and the new atmosphere that everyone is inhabiting uh, in recent years. What did you think about that note from Bloomberg? I mean, it's it's pretty consistent with a lot of what we've seen over the last 12 months or so. Uh, I think memos like that, at least around like not, you know, not being flashy, not showing off wealth. uh, That is not new. Um, nor is I think we've previous market down cycles, we've seen exhortations from the system to, you know, only spread positive energy, not talk down the market, not say bad things about the economy. Uh, there's, we're in the middle of another campaign to really limit, uh, discussions about economy, business prospects, economic prospects, stock market, um, to only positive energy, only say good things. And I think it's, it's a, uh, it's a sign of, uh, I think, the dif- how difficult the economic situation is. Uh, it's also uh, just again, you know, on the one hand, that the, the PRC policymakers are trying to fight against this perception that's being pushed in, say, the West, uh, investment circles, and certain certain investors that China is increasingly, some people say, uninvestable, or it's much harder to invest in. It's much riskier. The risk reward ratio has changed. So. Um, it's not nearly as attractive as a destination for investment. Uh, on the one hand, they're trying to fight that, but but the way they're doing that by limiting data, by um, limiting how you can talk about it and can only say good things, does the opposite of give people confidence. Right. I mean, I do understand the sentiment, hoping for more positive energy. Uh, I want more positive news that we could cover here, but... <laughs> systematically limiting the flow of information is probably not the right way to to go about restoring confidence around the world. Um, and you look at another line that jumped out at me from the Politico piece actually was Chinese financiers and business people quietly complain they're required to spend countless hours studying Xi Jinping thought on socialism with Chinese characteristics for a new era. A painfully turgid governing mantra 
that boils down to ideology-free totalitarian rule and the return of a personality cult to China. One positive note, turgid is a great way to describe Xi Jinping thought on all sorts of different issues. Um, so I appreciate the Politico descriptor there. Um, I don't know whether you have any I thoughts. don't know. I, I, I mean, I read it every day and it's just it's full of absolute brilliance and rhetorical flights of fancy no i'm kidding it's it's uh (laughs) who is it i was it jeremy barmay or somebody you know basically likens it to chewing rhinoceros sausage oh Uh, it's very it's very tough um but it's not had rhinoceros but yes um it's (laughs) evocative there it no it is important and it continues to sort of permeate all manners of discourse and industry in China. Um, well, it's, it's not only continues to, it's getting more intense. So yeah. And I mean, Xi Jinping thought, Xi Jinping economic thought is, is one of the variants of Xi thought. And uh, it, it, I think also, you know, if you're saying bad things about the Chinese economy, you're effectively talking, you know, you're, you're talking about how Xi Jinping economic thought isn't really great right now. And that's a problem. Right. Well, and, and so the New York Times this week reported the Communist Party issued a detailed ideological statement on Friday in Chushi, the party's main. Chosher, Cho- sorry, Chosher. Chosher, yeah. the party's main official theoretical journal that made clear it expected banks, pension funds, insurers, and other financial organizations in China to follow Marxist principles and pay obedience to Mr. Xi. Um, what should we know about that ideological statement? Is there anything new in there? Uh, so a couple of things. I actually uh, posted a translation of it uh, that I did. We'll put a link in the show notes so people can read it yourself if you want. Um, it's it's speaking Enjoy of rhino- the rhinoceros. <laughs> yes, exactly. Speaking of rhinoceros sausage. Um, I'll, I'll, so here's what I wrote yesterday about it. I had a fairly long section on it uh, in the Wednesday newsletter. Uh, this article, it w- it's written by the Office of the Central Financial Commission and the Central Financial Work Commission. Those are two new bodies that were set up earlier this year as part of this reorganization, restructuring of um, management and regulation of the financial system to add even more Communist Party control over the system. Mm-hmm. Um, so this article is based on Xi's speech uh, that he gave at the recent Central Financial Work Conference a few weeks ago. Um, once again, that work conference used to be known as the National Financial Work Conference. This this usually happens every five years. This this one was six years after the last one. This is the first time it's been called the Central Financial Work Conference. And that's a sign, again, of central usually refers to party center. Part, so it's, again, a sign of the, the party versus the state. The, right. the party, as I've written before, you know, we've seen a lot of the party eating the state in China. Um, so it's based on his speech. And this is a fairly long article, several thousand characters. It's short on policy prescriptions, but it does give a good idea, I think, of the direction of the PRC um, financial system and where policymakers want to take it. And so, again, among the money, the many themes in it, I would say we should expect much more party control, a rejection of much of, quote, Western financial theory, uh, more work and focus around risk prevention and mitigation. The, the tough battle around dealing with risk is they said they've made progress, but there's still a lot more work to be done. Mm-hmm. Um, more focus again on having finance serve the real economy, uh, not you know blowing up not blowing up bubbles or funding the next new consumer app kind of stuff, but really industry, industrial, hard technology, et cetera. 
Green finance is one of the areas they talk about. That, you know, again, this was also talked about from uh, came out of the readout of the uh, the Central Financial Work Conference a few weeks ago. Um, one line that really stuck out, um, and I, I I don't think I've seen this before in an authoritative uh, writings, is the the call for the formation of an independently controllable and secure financial infrastructure system. Um, so I think. That particular piece is once again the Chinese version. You know, this is uh, financial development of Chinese characteristics. This is financial de-risking with Chinese characteristics, where okay. they are building. Uh, you know, she wants to build Fortress China. He's hardening the system in so many ways. In the financial sector, they're very focused on hardening the system against the possibility of future sanctions. And I think this is an area where we need to recognize that just how beneficial the sanctions against Russia over Ukraine have been, or Ukraine have been for the PRC, um, not, just, levels, not just yeah. because they, they turn Russia into this captive lesser partner for, for many things, but also because now the PRC has a very clear roadmap of what the U.S. and its allies can do in the event of some sort of crisis where they would feel the need, say, for example, over Taiwan, they would feel the need to roll out a whole bunch of really harsh financial sanctions like they've done with Russia. And okay, so now yeah. the PRC has watched, they've learned, they see, I think, clearly, much more clearly where the vulnerabilities are in their system. And and part, a big chunk of the work going forward is going to be how to, um, how to remove those vulnerabilities and how to harden the system. Yeah, no, that, that makes sense. So in terms of infrastructure, is that something specific if financial infrastructure or just general like they they want to develop sort of core self-sufficiency and Great I'm, question. I'm wondering whether there's an apparatus that they're trying to develop uh that's a that's a great question i mean and and again this this document while long um and you know heavy on rhetoric uh, short on details um, this secure financial infrastructure system, I think certainly from an actual like a hardware software level, you've seen a lot of efforts over the last few years to, to de-Americanize the, the IT stack around the financial system. If mm. they haven't fully completed that, that will probably be accelerated. Uh, I, don't think they, I don't think they've gotten everything out. Um, it also probably is around payments um, and making sure that um, – they are no are reducing as much as possible vulnerabilities to disruptions. Um, if the U.S. decides to, for example, you know, cut them off, cut them out of SWIFT, like Swift, they did with yeah. Russia, right? Yep. Um, and so I think um, that infrastructure system does not, again, it does not just mean like let's buy a bunch of servers or routers or software. I think it's all about the actually how um, how money flows globally, right? Well, we should also note uh, the third plenum, which is the party meeting where she charts his long-term reform agenda, still has not been scheduled for anyone keeping track and looking for specific policy prescriptions. Um, and Bloomberg said delaying the meeting to 2024 would mark the first time it's been held in an off-schedule year in over three decades. We discussed it in depth uh, a couple weeks back. Bloomberg had a nice chart laying out the the history of when this meeting typically happens. Um, but yeah, it seems like it's almost official that it's not happening in 2023. And um, there's not really any announcement on the horizon for when we might see 
the plenum. I don't know whether you have any thoughts there. I just figured it's it's worth mentioning while we're on the top topic here. You know, as we've talked about in several podcasts, you know, normally you would get an announcement uh, of the dates for the plenum, uh, usually at the public readout of the monthly Politburo meeting. So uh, I think since August, people have been wondering, will this will this be the readout that gives us the dates? And the most recent meeting was last week, the November Politburo meeting. There was no mention of it. Uh, and so the assumption is that uh, it, it won't happen this year. I mean, there are only, whatever, what is it, 23 days left this year. Um, yep. But... Uh, it's it's also I mean it is always possible that they just hold it and then tell you afterwards that would be pretty rare um, I think so so I think it it will be next year at some point and given the sort of schedules if they don't set a date for early January uh, or sometime mid January then it's going to be pushed into either late February or March but then you know I mean it's it, it could be it could also just be a year from now it's it's really I think wow. um, yeah we we don't know and and you know. The the expectation again. This was the the guess. The expectation. It's not a hard and fast rule. The expectation with this this would be about uh, a, a heavy focus on the economy. Uh, there certainly had been a lot of uh, hope. You know, there's always this hope that just around the corner is the next new big stimulus, or the they're going to reverse a bunch of these policies to, to build more confidence both domestically and externally and get foreign investors back. Uh, the the hope had been that then the, the plenum would do it and would signal a shift in course. Uh, mm-hmm. that isn't happening. There's a big meeting. It's, we'll guess that the dates have not been announced, but it's probably, uh, about a week from now. It'll probably be like by next weekend, um, is the central economic work conference, which is held every December, uh, that, that sets the uh, agenda, the economic agenda for the next year. Uh, that's the next big meeting to look for, for indications of sort of shifting policy or, you know, how, how investors and how business people can look at, you know, what what the next year is going to look like, at least from a policy prescription perspective. Um, the third plenum is, again, I just think that it's it's one of those things where, uh, like with a lot of things in this year, uh, he'll hold it when he wants to, right? right? And and but but, you know, because. Lots of people assumed it had to be, you know, they have to hold the plenum according to the party constitution, party charter, once a year. They held the second plenum in, I think, February. Uh, So they've already held one this year. So they don't actually have a requirement to hold the third plenum this year. Usually they do. Usually the first year after, a first full year after, a calendar year after party congress, they hold two plenums. That's just sort of how it has been mostly. But again, in... The 19th Party Congress in 2000 and, uh, God, was this 2018, they had the second, third plenum in the first quarter because the third plenum was basically to, to, to approve the removal of removal limits. of the term limits. Yeah. Um, and, and so removal of term li- limits for she, for anyone yeah. who's new here. Yeah. So, so it, it isn't clear, you know, but there, of course, again, information vacuum. So there are some people are saying, well, this is a sign of disagreements or she's under pressure or they can't, you know, they can't agree on what the policy should be. It's possible. We don't know. Well, and and for anybody who's new and hasn't been living in the trenches with us the last three or four months, um, correct me if I'm wrong, but this is notable on two fronts, because number one, China has been enduring a period of 
economic instability the last year or so. And it depends on how you measure what you want to highlight, but it hasn't been great. And so there are people inside China and outside China who are waiting for policy prescriptions that can perhaps change the narrative a little bit. Make it better somehow. Just make it better. Yeah, exactly. And it's easier said than done, which we've covered in, in great detail. But number one, that meeting is not being convened. And so those policy prescriptions are not forthcoming. And then number two, it's another case where it's not only that she frequently deviates from Western norms, but he's even perceived to be deviating from norms within the CPC and and the party's history. Um, And that's another reason that people sort of view his time and power as a departure from what we've seen over the last 30 years or so. Norm since sort of the late 70s, early 80s, since the Deng, right. Deng Xiaoping era started. Um, certainly there were long delays between meetings in the Mao era. Um, I, I think also, I mean, you've got uh, overlaying a lot of this is this hope that somehow the party will correct course, right? So you had Xi Jinping spent five days or so in Shanghai last week on an inspection tour. Um, there had been some sort of pre-visit leaking information shaping to sort of say, oh, this is going to be like when Deng Xiaoping went down to southern China, like Shenzhen, Guangdong province in uh, a couple of years after Tiananmen Square, like it was like mm-hmm. late, ni- late 91 and early 92. It was this Deng Xiaoping southern tour where after 1989, the Tiananmen Square crackdown, um, there was a pretty significant leftward lurch. Uh, and, you know, Deng Xiaoping made this big southern tour and then all of a sudden it sort of ignited this, you know, decades of economic reform and blossoming is sort of the official right to be oversimplified a bit, but, but, but you get my point. Uh, and so there was, I think there's some sort of talk that, Oh, you know, and maybe it was also people who were either needed to get prices up to sell the stocks they were stuck in, or were trying to really, you know, ramp the market for other reasons. We're trying to push out that, Oh, this, this is going to be a, mem- <laughs> but yeah, a momentous visit. And this will be sort of, this will mark a, a shift and, you know, rejuvenating reform and opening, et cetera, et cetera. And it wasn't that. And I think that, um, you know, my and I was skeptical because it's like, is she going to repudiate himself and repudiate the policies right. they just put in place a year ago at the 20th Party Congress? Um, unlikely. I mean, one of the things you hear from, uh, from people who are concerned, including Chinese observers, Chinese economists, uh, is, you know, this hope that, since especially since the 20th party congress you know when they when they really elevated the concept of better coordinating security and development security has really sort of dominated a lot of things and the hope was mm-hmm. there would be a recalibration to push more focus on to development uh lessen the importance of security uh that obviously i mean at least what what, what we've talked about on this podcast many times you the increasing public role the ministry of state security uh, what we talked about earlier about this new document, th- this article in Shosha from the, um, the those those two commissions, uh, it's very clearly no let up on the increasing focus on security. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's clear where their priorities lie, and and with she and the policies that have been acted in, enacted in recent years, you don't get the sense that it's particularly practical so much as ideological. Um, it's maybe practical from a security standpoint, but I, I, it's not as if growing the economy and appealing to global investors um, 
has ever really been the priority. So I'm kind of shocked that anybody bought the rumors that it was a potential I mean, sequel to Dung's uh, tour. I mean, I think, I think, I think part of it is this, um, you know, this, the state of the economy is, and maybe we'll get censored because we're not giving full positive energy here, but the state of economy of the economy is not great. <laughs> yeah. um, it's not like the two economist covers over the summer back to back that we talked about where it was like about to collapse, but it's not great. And, you know, there is, uh, there continues to be this hope that, okay, well, they'll wake up and they'll realize that this is, you know, they're heading the wrong direction. They have to make some shifts. And it certainly is possible, for example, at the Central Economic Work Conference next week, there'll be some messaging out of that, that are, are tactical shifts to, towards stabilization around the real estate market, um, you know, maybe some more moves, some more concrete moves to deal with some of the debt crisis. Um, but I think that uh, it's going to take a lot to convince certainly me and I think people who actually matter that any shift is more than just tactical to stabilize things and to keep things from getting worse. Right. And, it, well, and, it, and it's also like what we saw, I think we talked about this, about the, the Biden Xi meeting last month. Uh, it's in a, you know, the, in the U.S. side, I think they're very aware of this. Was they saw that the Chinese wanted a tactical stabilization of the relationship. Superficial There's nothing, gestures, yeah. But it's not. It's not fundamentally the, the the overall trajectory hasn't changed fundamentally. And I think when you look at this, going back and reading this Chosher article, and I really, especially um, if, if you're feeling guilty about something and you feel like the need to to sort of absolve <laughs> yourself you should read this repent you should read this document you'll feel much better afterwards great um, i mean one of the overlying and again it's a theme of the sierra especially but one of the overarching themes is basically western financial thinking western financial thought it doesn't work for us it has too many problems mm-hmm. we're we're de we're, we're it's an intellectual decoupling as well as a sort of a financial de-risking in many ways and that's not something that you know you're going to have a meeting next week and they're going to put out a bunch of policies and that's that overarching sort of ideological um superstructure is not going to change that's what i mean where in the tug of war between practical and ideological um ideological is winning time and time and time again under Xi. Um, and there's this sort of deep-seated opposition to the West and capitalism. And it, it's a, a departure from what we saw 30 years ago under Deng Xiaoping and 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 leaders that followed him. Um, and one other note on the financial front, and this is more bad news. So we're outside the paywall this week. We are 100% getting punished for the bad news on this episode. But on Tuesday, Moody's lowered its credit outlook for China from stable to negative, uh, noting that the growing debt problems of some cities and provinces would force China's central government to provide financial support when economic growth is slowing and that the country is also grappling with a deep property slump. Um, so I think the reaction to this news is more interesting than the news itself. But did we learn anything new from the the news that the outlook is being downgraded? Like, how important is that designation? Uh, the rating agencies are usually behind the curve. Um, and so uh, I don't think we, we, we learned anything particularly new. Uh, the reaction was interesting. Of course, you know, the Ministry of Finance very quickly put out a statement about why Moody, they were disappointed and why Moody's was wrong. Um, you know, it's interesting because when rating agencies have done similar things, including Moody's, about the U.S., of course, certain PRC media, 
you know, jump in about, oh, this is, front you know, and center. <laughs> front and center, like they're screwed. This is why they're, you know, profligate, blah, blah, blah. And of course, when it's done to China, then of course, it's, you know, basically like they're idiots and it's a plot. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that uh, ultimately it's not really clear that it's meaningful. Like, you know, they didn't change the rating. The uh, serious investors who pay attention to these ratings you know, are very well aware, are very much aware of all these issues to begin with. That was my thought. I can't imagine any investor is but not it looks already bad. concerned. It, yeah. Again, it looks bad. Uh, it It is another, it's, it's just another reason for some investors who might've been on the fence about investing in China or, you know, pulling money out of China. It's just another reason to maybe not put more money in or take some money out. Um, it, it's in some ways a repudiation of Xi Jinping thought on on Xi Jinping economic thought. So right. it makes him it makes him look bad, uh, potentially. Um, I think what's also interesting, so a couple of things. The Financial Times today, Thursday, had an article, um, and I was I was actually curious about this, about how Moody's had told its employees to stay home in China to stay home, not go to the office, and uh, its employees in Hong Kong to n- not plan to travel to the mainland for a period of time because yeah. they were worried about the backlash, which is kind of nuts. Right. Well, I, that article really struck me on Thursday. I, I'll read a portion of it. They didn't give us the reason, but everyone knows why, said one China-based Moody's employee referring to the request to work from home. We are afraid of government inspections. The staff member said Moody's also advised analysts in Hong Kong to temporarily avoid travel to the Chinese mainland ahead of the cut. The staff member said working from home might prevent Chinese authorities from questioning many employees in one place if they decided to raid the agency, but added that such a raid was still considered to be unlikely. Um, Those are just incredible considerations to have to make in any business environment. And it's a good concrete example of the realities facing certain Western businesses doing business on the ground these days. Um, And I, I, what I found interesting is it's rare to get that kind of insight because most of these companies don't want to actually talk about what's going on and potentially put their employees further at risk. But there was an employee talking off the record there and relaying all that. Yeah. And, and one of the things you have to worry about if your company is raided is what kind of access do they get to your corporate IT network and how, you know, and, and, and certainly um, some companies have been raided and IT, the security wasn't great and the, the authorities got access to the whole global corporate network. Wow. So that so even beyond China, not something you want. I know of at least one major consulting company where now everything in China, that everything's in the cloud. Um, so that if the office is raided, basically they could just flip a switch and there's no access from China. And so mm-hmm. if they take, if they take the devices, there's nothing on the devices, um, which is, is again, how you have to do it. Unfortunately. Yeah. Um, I, I think that, I mean, and there's another quote, the number two official in Hong Kong. And again, this is this, this language coming out of like a Hong Kong uh, number two official. He sounds like a PRC official. Uh, he sounds actually the PRC officials, like the Ministry of Finance, you know, their statements were, were, ups- were disappointed. They're wrong. This is why they're wrong. They're actually pretty reasonable. They weren't like They streets. were more restrained they than were I was restrained. expecting. Yeah. Some of the propaganda, you know, the propaganda outlets are a little more, a little more, um, uh, uh, unleashed. But this number two Hong Kong official, Eric Chan, said that, um, it, you know, Moody's move was an attempt by the US led West to smear the financial hub as well as China. This is from yeah. a, a Wall Street Journal article that quotes his radio interview. 
Uh, he said, quote, its sole purpose is to use Hong Kong as a means of suppressing the country's development. This is very obvious because the, they also, Moody's also changed its um, outlook on Hong Kong and Hong Macau. Kong, yeah. It, that made me really sad. Coming from a Hong Kong representative, right. is that's just incredibly depressing. In Hong Kong, you know, they're in the middle of this campaign to try and convince foreign investors that Hong Kong is open for business. Nothing has changed. You know, it's the, it's the, it's the, you know, the, the, the same old Hong Kong financial yeah. gateway to the mainland. Um, and increasingly, you know, this official, the response to uh, uh, one of the, um, uh, one of the people who was, who's, uh, has been arrested and charged under the sort of for the, her role in the uh, demonstration several years ago, who then was on bail and then left for Canada, the response, the language they use, the official rhetoric coming out of the government Sounds like the, the the sort of the worst of sort of the PRC rhetoric, mm-hmm. and so and so the, the the way they're talking is flying in the face of what they're trying to present to the outside world about how Hong Kong is nothing has changed and we're this great international financial gateway. It's it's right. really kind of strange. Yeah, and along those same lines, in terms of what's being portrayed to the outside world, like it just seems so clear to me as an outsider that the perceived threats to the personal safety of employees at a firm like Moody's or the risk of raids on the Moody's offices, that's a much bigger red flag to foreign investment than the credit outlook that Moody's is putting forward. Um, And it doesn't seem like that's been a deterrent thus far. And it'll be interesting to see whether any of that environment changes as the economic outlook continues to struggle. But that that ties back into our conversation a few minutes ago, talking about you know development and security and had balancing that, which is again security is security still trumps everything. Yeah. And um, you know one other thing that I think another more developments that may really uh, it'll be interesting if they happen how they will be perceived by international investors and and domestic investors, but I think they will probably be seen as negative is back to our discussion about, you know, not, not, not just this, this document and shows about the you know financial system with Chinese characteristics, but also more broadly, the continuing crackdown, uh, corruption crackdown in the financial system, um, which again, the, the government, the party told us they were going to do at the, at the plenum in, in January for the, um, the CCDI, the party commission, the party body that does, Corrupt, anti-corruption work and ideological discipline. Uh, they were very clear in what their goals were for this year was was dealing with corruption in the financial sector. Is I think that there are still some pretty significant financial figures to go down in uh, corruption investigations, and that's part of. I mean, and and, and they're and in many ways they're justified. The, the Chinese financial system. One of the reasons they have a debt crisis is there's been so much corruption in the financial system, right? Uh, and so it's actually justified in a lot of ways, but. Of course, the way they go about it and its opacity and, you know, people like the head of the, the China Renaissance Bank, Balfan, who's now, you know, been in custody since uh, maybe nine, nine months or so. Yeah. And feels like um, oh, almost a full year. Since and and from what about this with no answers, people who know him are saying and still in really awful conditions uh, is the kind of thing that sends shivers through the financial community. To take things in a completely different direction at the very end here, um, speaking of security and, and the balance between security and commerce, 
Gina Raimondo appeared this weekend at the Reagan National Defense Forum in California, and her comments were pretty spicy. So on the heels of the export controls, which finally went through earlier this fall, she says, quote, we cannot let China get these chips, period. I have a $200 million budget. That's like the cost of a few fighter jets. Come on. If we're serious, let's go fund this operation like it needs to be funded. And then she also complained about corporate America complaining, saying, newsflash, democracy is good for your business. Rule of law here and around the world is good for your businesses. It might make for a tough quarterly shareholder call, but in the long run, it's worth you working for us to defend our national security. And then she also called out NVIDIA by name and says, if you redesign a chip around a particular cut line that enables China to do AI... I'm going to control it the very next day. And so thank you to Jordan Schneider of uh, China Talk for transcribing some of those quotes. What did you think of those comments? Am I wrong in sensing a, a bit of an escalation in terms of rhetoric? What, what was your reaction? So I would say that the, that the venue matters. Uh, that Reagan uh, Defense Forum, you don't go there if you're not hawkish or sound yeah, hawkish. I, I was wondering whether she was sort of puffing out her chest a little Secretary bit. Secretary Raimondo is also a politician, first and foremost. And so this was a very good venue to make it, you know, to, to show off your hawkishness. Uh, I think that, um, you know, certainly uh, the, the October 7th rules last year and then the updated rules this October – uh, at least around AI chips and NVIDIA were, were pretty tough, but you know, there's, and, and I think she was called out by some of the more hawkish uh, quote unquote hawkish, or they, again, I, we've not my favorite word, but some of the more, you know, wanting to pursue tougher uh, line on China uh, folks on the Hill, like uh, representative Gallagher for things like, well, that's great. You, you, you're talking tough, but what about Huawei? Because there was supposed right. to be this Huawei final rule that revoked a bunch Smith? of these licenses that's basically been stuck at commerce for many months. And, you know, and that this was before the, 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 the phone that um, was released while Secretary Mondo was in Beijing in China and for which she was an unofficial spokesperson, if we remember that, um, that episode, <laughs> right? right? Um, yep. And, and so, so I think there's, there's certainly, you know, she's talking really tough. Substantively, it's not clear that the, the rhetoric matches her, her public statements um, mm -hmm. to some extent, especially around Huawei. Uh, and, uh, you know, there was a, uh, we can put it, put it in the, uh, the show notes too. Bloomberg got a good story, I think it was last Friday, about uh, Huawei and sort of how Huawei is the, the, now the center of the uh, PRC semiconductor system. And right. all the ways that Huawei is uh, funding other companies with money, with personnel, with patents. Well, and um, what, what the government is doing, uh, hundreds yeah. of billions of dollars well, being poured well, into and, this and industry. In many ways, Huawei is the, Huawei's the, the sort of the front for that. Right, and yet conduit. lots of these companies that reporters can find that are linked to Huawei are not at all you know, subject to any sort of controls from the U.S. government. Um, mm -hmm. Even though if, if the Bloomberg folks know about these things uh, – Someone in the U.S. government, I think, knows as well. That was when I read it. I was like, man, I hope our intelligence agencies are also up on this. If a Bloomberg reporter well, could just go to these well, businesses. Well, I mean, Nikkei Asia, which again, I said earlier, has, I think, the best uh, check coverage of China. 
Um, you know, they had a story a year ago about these various uh, some of the companies that Huawei was funding and set up to get around sanctions, and um, it's been known for a long time. Mm-hmm. Um, so, to a couple other points, to her point about, and she's talking, I think, specifically about BIS and its budget at two hundred million dollars, and. Um, it is true. BIS is at the same level it was a long time ago, and they're being asked to do a lot more with the same resources. And I actually think that uh, a conversation about increasing its resources makes sense. One of the questions is, I think, on from Congress will be whether or not it makes sense to keep BIS in the Commerce Department. Right? There are some there are some folks who want to move it to somewhere else that has where it has more of a national security focus and isn't so much muddied between sort of security, but then also all these commercial interests. On Nvidia in particular, um, my view is that Jensen Huang and Nvidia really did he did himself no favors with the games he was playing over the summer, trying mm-hmm. to change the narrative, silence some voices. We've talked about this, um, and then the sort of quickly. Sp- pushing out a chip that was just below the threshold. Um, It it was just a little bit too cutesy, a little bit too much, you know, I'm smarter than you. And I think that that on a personal level, there, there isn't a lot of warm and fuzzy feelings towards NVIDIA. Yeah. Well, and that's a tough one, which is not how you want uh, the situation to be with the regulatory body that can have a significant impact on your ability to sell into a large market. Yeah. And and, I mean, I understand why a company like NVIDIA would say, why are you highlighting us for responding to your rules and adapting our business accordingly? Uh, You set specific rules and we specifically came in under the the requirements. Um, But I also understand Raimondo's perspective, where ultimately that just creates a situation where a U.S. government agency that has, you know, a fraction of the funding that NVIDIA does and a fraction of the engineering expertise that NVIDIA does then has to expend tons of time and resources playing whack-a-mole to try to stop a U.S. company from aiding a foreign adversary. And in that case, it, it just... It, it, it is not crazy to me to have sort of broad guidance in place as opposed to specific parameters um, right. that will inevitably change every nine months and you'll be back to square one. And, and also, it, you know, what happened, the updated October, October 7 rules this year, uh, originally, I think NVIDIA had 30 days to sell, to continue selling their chips that were that were okay under the first version of the rule, but then were no longer okay under the updated rules. Mm-hmm. And then within a couple of days, commerce basically said it's effective immediately. Right. And because so I think they, what they, what they, they found was themselves any goodwill. Well, no, but I think what happened was NVIDIA was, was trying to basically shift orders from non-Chinese clients and jam it into China early. Ah, Wow. Yeah, well, and that's just subverts the spirit of the rules. Again, Jensen Huang's loyalty is to the shareholders, you know, shareholder value. He's doing, he's making rational choices in the short term, at least, for as a running a company. And so, yeah, yeah, I my this revenue pot goes away in twenty nine days. But if I move stuff around, I can get these multi billion dollars, you know, now, and then I can backfill the clients who I I push back next month. And so, therefore, I, I I. you know, it's like, what's the big deal? It's just a month or two of timing. And, you know, from a corporate perspective, that makes sense. I think from the regulatory perspective, this is like, okay, you know, we, we, we didn't really think of that. And now you make us look like fools and you're obviously playing games. So we're going to do so it. So we're we pissed off more now. Difficult. Yeah, we're pissed off. 
Yeah, right? and, and that's okay. Um, you know, and, and when she says, newsflash, democracy is good for your business. Rule of law here and around the world is good for your businesses. Um, I appreciated that because it was similar to a sentiment that I expressed on Sharp China like over the summer where I just sort of snapped. It was like, you are an American business, and that is what comes first in some of these discussions. Um, so I understand the motivations uh, of everyone involved here. And it does. It, it, the reason it's interesting and the reason it, it's worth coming back to chips is it's just a really interesting microcosm of choices that could play out across several industries if the relationship between the U.S. and the Chi- and China gets worse over the next few years, um, where it, it there are questions of you know how the government can regulate and should there be highly specific regulations or broad rules and harsh penalties on U.S. companies that deviate from the rules. Uh, and it's just going to be answered on sort of a, a case-by-case basis. And we're seeing that in the, in the, on Capitol Hill over this outbound investment controls or screening, Yeah, where even in the Republican Party, you have some who are arguing for much broader controls. And then you have others who, who have the power to block any bills, specifically Representative McHenry, who's retiring soon or retiring after this term, who want it to be a much more focused on specific sort of entity level. And, and the specific thing that was in play in the last week or two was um, bipartisan legislation that would have forced companies to notify the U.S. government before making infrastructure investments, sensitive infrastructure investments in China. And there was broad support for it. So uh, honestly, I'm impressed. Patrick McHenry going out with a bang there uh, managed to block it from being included in the NDAA, National Defense Authorization Act. I mean, I think, again, it, it goes back to sort of if you believe that certain types of sales and investments should be con- to China or with China should be controlled, the challenge of doing it on an entity by entity level is that it's very easy for the firms to set up new entities and new jurisdictions and, and get around the rules. And we've seen that repeatedly with various types of um, controls. Yep. And, yeah. and this is where, you know, and, and so, for example, I've, things like I think it was iFlyTech where, you know, they put one other companies on the list, but another one wasn't. And so the, they could still buy U.S. technology through the one that wasn't. And I could be wrong. I'm, I'm, I'm Like I said, it's a it's a. Thursday in a long week, um, but but it was just a classic example of how the entity by entity approach has a whole bunch of loopholes in it. We, right, and that's when the question then becomes: Do you try to do this with a scalpel, or do you try to take just a broader approach? Um, I don't want to say hammer, but like maybe blanket approach, where you say, "Look, if U.S. components show up in any company involved in sector X, sector Y, or sector Z, the people at the U.S. companies are going to be in serious trouble." Um, and how you define it is an open question. And we're but- long, and, and we're a long way from that. Even if a company's caught doing that, I think you end up with a with a slap on the wrist and a fine. Um, right. For the most part. And so for a lot of these companies, the money, the, the amount of revenue involved is so large that this is just like another fee. Um, well, um, one other note, just as an unrelated aside, watching the video of Raimondo, I think she comes across better than any other cabinet secretary in the Biden White House. I was struck by the charisma in her interview. She strikes a good balance in terms of tone. So I just wanted to note that for the record. Um, I, she's a very impressive politician. She is a politician playing to an audience, but she's good at it. 
Oh, no, she's very good. And she's, I think, you know, Commerce Secretary is far from her desired final um, position. Yeah. And, you know, uh, and Commerce has taken on outsized importance in the last couple of years. That's why I, the call for more funding to BIS does make a lot of sense to me as it's become sort of a critical wing of the U.S. government determining yeah. export no, I was, I was at a, I was at a, at a, at a thing last month, um, sort of a group discussion, and there was someone who had um, worked in the early years of the Trump administration who had worked, um, I think, just the first year or so, but had worked on China-related issues and you know, specifically around technology. And, and they were they walked through why BIS was underfunded, understaffed, and why it was being called, it was being asked to do things for which it really wasn't designed. Mm. And so that there really was a need to restructure this part of the bureaucracy as well as give it additional resources to better um, fit what it's being asked to do by the U.S. government. Yeah. And it's really difficult. I got into this with Ben on Sharp Tech a little bit. Um, it's difficult to compete for talent when you're trying to hire engineers who are talented enough to actually understand how these businesses work at the highest levels because private industry can offer like 20 times the money. Um, so to the extent it's possible to at least tip the scales a little bit more in the government's direction, uh, that's probably a good idea yeah, as well. And that's and, and that's why you see, if you, if you look at a lot of the semiconductor firms, um, their government relations shops staffed with lots of former commerce officials. Yeah, doing pretty well for themselves. So congrats uh, to those commerce depends officials. Depends where they went. <laughs> it, it, I don't, NVIDIA, I think their problem has been the lack of a government relations group that they're now in the process of building up. Um, other, you know, you went to other, some of these other semiconductor companies. I think you probably have to look with, with red-eyed rage at what could have been if you'd gotten an NVIDIA, given how much the, the, options um, the, the value of the alone. options have gone up. Yeah, yeah. No, it's nuts. It's absolutely nuts. Condolences to anyone out there who didn't join NVIDIA over the last three or four years. Uh, we can end on that <laughs> note. We got a bunch of good questions that we weren't able to get to today. Uh, I apologize to everyone. We were stuck in the muck of the PRC economy here. But we will circle back next week and email at sharpchina.fm is the email address where you can send us questions. We got to talk U.S.-China flights. We got to talk uh, academic engagement, Alibaba. There are a lot of different topics that we'll hit and send us more. It'll be fun to run through all of it with Bill early next week. And um Bill, beyond that, I hope you successfully make it to Friday afternoon, make it to happy hour at the dog park with Tashi. Perhaps I'll see you out there. Hopefully it'll be a little warmer, maybe a little brighter than what we're working with on Thursday afternoon here in D.C. It's a little little bit too bleak uh, on this December afternoon. Uh, you know, it's not raining. Um but yeah, we'll, we'll hope to see you at the dog park. And I actually, I'm happy. I'm having a, uh, a subscriber, I'm meeting a subscriber uh, who, who uh, anyway, they reached out to talk about something. And uh, we're doing our meeting with Wakantashi on the weekend. Oh, so wow. It's all good. That's great. Uh, well, enjoy that. I also enjoy that every time I complain about the weather, you come back looking on the bright side, saying, hey, it's not that bad. It could be worse. Uh, a good attitude to carry into the world. So... On that note, we will close it out and circle back next week. Everyone have a great weekend. And Bill, I will talk to you soon. Thank you. Talk to you soon. Thanks, everybody. 